On today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we'll continue our apologetic series by diving into the fraught world of the Inquisitions. And it all starts with one basic concept. How should the church deal with heresies? What does a trial for a crime against truth look like? And what should it look like? Throughout history, were there abuses of this process by the church or by civil authorities? Or is it all completely exaggerated? There's lots of info that Dr. Rao will help us uncover in the next hour or so. You can find notes to all of these episodes at sspxpodcast.com slash apologetics, as well as all of our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to, as well as all of the resources that we're posting. But if you can help with a one-time or a small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now let's join Dr. John Rao for episode number 22 of the Apologetic Series. Dr. Rao, good to see you again. Thanks for joining us on this next episode. Um, was still thinking about the Crusades episode, fascinated by all the history, everything that went went on behind the scenes that we just don't know much about. Um, but today we're going to look at um, another event or series of events that took place primarily, I guess, in Spain, and that is uh, the Inquisition. Um, so I, I guess the Inquisition happened because there was a problem of heresy in the Catholic Church or within the Catholic Church, surrounding the Catholic Church uh, during this period. Can you give us kind of the overall view of where this started? Well, actually, there's there's three segments of Inquisition history. Um, the first of them starts out with the um, the medieval Inquisition, which is something that deals with an awareness on the part of the church, particularly when you get into the middle of the 1100s, that there is a uh, widespread heresy uh, that has to be dealt with. Um, and it came as a, a real shock what it is that uh, people who were first engaged in it uh, in the discovery, um, uh, when they became aware of what uh, the extent of this was. And that led to, uh, in what we call the medieval Inquisition, a series of ad hoc uh, commissions, in effect, being sent out underneath the control of papal legates, in which uh, first the Cistercians and then the Franciscans and Dominicans, but primarily the Dominicans, were involved. And that has a very great impact uh, from the 1100s down into the 1300s when it pretty much fades away uh, from the picture, even though uh, there are certain heretical problems have to be dealt with as well. The second one, which is uh, perhaps the most popular target of people who are anti-Catholic, is the Spanish Inquisition. And that's a quite different phenomenon that was set up in 1478 with papal approval and which continues onwards uh, with a with a break because of the French Revolution down ultimately to 1834. And then the third one is the Roman Inquisition, which is set up in 1542 by Pope Paul III because of the awareness of uh, Protestant influence that was having a, an impact in Italy. All right. So that there are three distinct, very, very important manifestations of what we refer to as the, the Inquisition. Okay. So this all came about because of of heresies, and as we know, studying the history of the church, there were there were heresies that propped up from the very beginning all the way until the present moment. Um, but was this a particular period of time where there were a lot of heresies, or were, was there a, a problem with with heresies within the church uh, before this period that we're talking about? Well, I mean, after the initial uh, period of the of the first ecumenical councils, 
when various problems of Arianism and then uh, and then uh, um, uh, the Christological issues were dealt with, and then the iconoclast heresy, there is really a kind of calm that uh, that hits the scene both in East and West. There's one minor outbreak of a, a very very intellectual form of uh, heresy just for a brief period in the West in the early 800s, but it doesn't really amount to anything. But what happens um, in particular is that in both the East and the West, there is the discovery uh, in the late 10 hundreds in the East already, early 11 hundreds perhaps in the East as well. And then in the course of the 11 hundreds of the way in which there um, has uh, been spreading a form of Gnosticism, the form of Gnosticism that we know as Manichaeanism, uh, which was uh, something alarming uh, in both the Eastern Empire and then in the West in particular, well, there's certain manifestations of this in the Rhineland area and the area of the Lowlands, but primarily in southern France, southwestern France and northern Italy. Um, and uh, it's it's dealing with this and then trying to distinguish what it is that is taking place there from certain other developments which um, are not uh, at first heretical but um have a certain heretical manifestation of it that the uh that the um first medieval inquisition comes into into operation uh we can talk more about that if you want but in any case that's the background there okay so what did the what was the heresy of the manichaeans what did they profess well uh first of all manichaeanism is a form of the broader uh heresy or vision you might uh, it's, it's broader than a christian phenomenon or an anti-christian phenomenon uh that we call gnosticism and gnosticism uh is something which has certain divisions within it there are in effect moderate forms of what's called gnosticism and then more more intense forms of it but generally speaking what gnosticism is uh is something focused on the idea that the created world uh is uh is the product of something evil I um, mean, it's more absolute form. It's it's as though there are two principles at work: a, a good principle and an evil principle. And it's more moderate form. There's just a kind of falling off um, from the good principle that leads to the creation of the world around us. But the the main thrust of it is that the world that we're dealing with now is evil. Um, it is a deceptive world. Uh, there's no way that uh, an, an individual soul can in any pure fashion come to terms with this and what you have to do is you have to find a way to escape from this world of evil in order that the the, the little particle within your soul uh that that remains or yearns to be pure um can uh join up with uh, what it is that's good, that's beyond creation, that is different than creation, that's an, an enemy in the more absolute forms of Gnosticism, of, of, of creation um, in general. And so it, it, it has no possibility uh, in any of its forms of coming to terms with a religion that's based upon the creation of the world by a good God. Um, and with the um, the evil that exists in the world not having anything to do with that good God, and nevertheless with that good God uh, saving the creation that has gone astray through uh, merely human action uh, and redeeming it and transforming it and utilizing it. Now, the thing that makes um, Manichaeanism particularly problematic 
Uh, it's the product of a um, of a, uh, a Persian figure, kind of mysterious in some respects, Persian figure from the um, the uh, third century, maybe late second century, but third century primarily, uh, who uh, uh, when he preached his form of Gnosticism, uh, argued that what was necessary was to uh, evangelize this this teaching uh, all across the globe in a universal way um, with a with a, a plan for evangelization that did not involve a head-on attack uh, against all of the various uh, religions or, or cultural um, situations where the Manichaeans were going to enter, but um, a plan of evangelization which sought to, well, we would use the term deconstruct what it is that uh, you're dealing with. Uh, find a way to grapple onto it and reinterpret it to use it for your own uh, your own purposes. So to give you um, the um, the uh, example of the way in which this would involve, let's say both the Judaic and then the Christian traditions with Scripture, what you do is you don't reject the scriptures of the Jews or the scriptures of the Christians. What you do is you reinterpret them and. You begin that reinterpretation with the reinterpretation of the whole account of the fall, uh, because in the Manichaean understanding of things, uh, the uh, temptation of Eve and then Adam uh, is really an uncovering by uh, the force that wants to lead you away from the deceptions of what the Jews and the Christians consider to be the good God and his good creation, so that by... Um, eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, the temptation to do this is a good thing. It's a good thing. And everything else is interpreted in relation to uh, what happens so that what you have with the fall is the punishment of this evil force responsible for the creation uh, of uh, these people who have been given an inkling of the fact that there's a way out of this mess, which is not that, that either the Jews or the Christians um, consider to be the way out of it. And you, you, you have to reinterpret everything on this basis. The, the other aspect of uh, all Gnostic approaches and the Manichaean approach as well is that the people who um, know the truth about the evil of creation and are going to lead you away from it through their reinterpretive work here. Um, the, um, the knowledge of this is the knowledge of uh, certain very, very, um, uh, a very elite group of awakened, in effect, prophetic figures. And the reason why we use the term Gnosticism to describe uh, the whole vision is because that word indicates it's a Greek word for knowledge and there is a special secret esoteric knowledge that this elite group has um that um that um they have to transmit to a population which is steeped in the evil of creation and which they are able to lead them away from because they have uh through their knowledge undertaken this process of purification um, which uh, which enables them to be able to be the custodians of this of this esoteric truth. So this is a heresy that's starting to spread in this region around this time. What was the response of the church? You know, the church obviously has to uphold the truth, has to make sure that that heresy is not being spread. So what were they going to do about it, or what did they do about it? 
Well, I mean, it first made its appearance um, in um, in the, uh, the the immediate time period after money um, uh, when money was living, because the whole period of the Roman Empire from the late one hundreds uh, onwards is is spiritually very very troubled, and the Manichaeans made their penetration into the Roman Empire at that time, and. What's of interest is the fact that, and it plays a role, by the way, uh, later on with the Inquisition, what's of interest is the fact that the Roman Empire saw, just as the Persian Empire saw, that the teaching of the Manichaeans as a form of Gnosticism was dangerous to the state as well, because the state is a, is a, a force for evil insofar as it claims that it can create order um, and justice uh, in this this uh, this uh, uh, terribly corrupt uh, created world, so that the state reacted badly against the Manichaeans, but so did the Christian Church. And the great um, figure that uh, can easily be mentioned in the fight against the Manichaeans the first time around is Saint Augustine. Saint Augustine was tempted by Manichaeanism. Um, and then rejected it, and then in rejecting it, became one of the great fighters against it. And it was pretty much uh, through the uh, the state uh, efforts to try to destroy this, even when the state in Rome was anti-Christian, and then the Christian church's efforts to destroy it when it became um, an accepted institution, it was pretty much uh, uh, put down um, and went underground. And then what happens is it uh, it, it never went completely um, dead, let's say, uh, in the easternmost regions of the eastern part of the Roman Empire. So it pops up there again uh, in the 900s and 1000s. And one, um, one uh, initial reason for its spread was that uh, in order to fight it, remember when we were talking about the Crusades, I noted that the, the uh, Eastern Roman Empire went on, uh, on the warpath again in the 900s and 1000s, and it mm -hmm. expanded eastward, and it encountered a lot of these, uh, the, the survivors of this mentality there. And to break their power, what they did is they divided them up and they, and they um, deported some of them to the far western end of the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, and that uh, is in um, present-day Bulgaria, so that there developed another another center of this in Bulgaria. And then what happened is that um, people who were evangelists for this vision they started traveling westward um, into into uh, Italy and into present-day southern France in particular and, and apparently some of them even up the Rhine um, into into the lowlands but it's primarily northern Italy and southern France that they go uh, and the people who were playing this role of evangelist were people who um, were merchants uh, and at times people who got engaged in the expanded merchant lines that were developed as a result of the Crusades and Venice's and Genova's efforts in uh, serving as as uh, as uh, uh, agents for transporting uh, both both crusaders and goods east and west. So they maneuvered into this into this region. And um, then what happened is they um, they they had debates because these different factions 
were active there, the ones who had a somewhat more moderated form of this idea of the corruption of uh, the universe and the others who had this absolute idea of there being a good principle, a good principle which had nothing to do with creation whatsoever and a totally evil principle responsible for, um, for creation. And then by the time you get into the early 1100s, what happens is that the most organized branch of this more absolute vision of what uh, was uh, what needed to be taught, uh, went on a special kind of missionary trip um, into into northern Italy and into southern France, and organized uh, the Manichaean Church in an extremely extremely sophisticated way. So that for someone who was not aware. Um, of what it was that was happening here when they encountered a Manichaean bishop and a Manichaean parish, uh, a Manichaean councils, because there are meetings of these groups as well. It would have been hard for a lot of people to distinguish the outward structure from that of the Catholic Church. Wow. Um, but, but the church was aware that there was something going on here um, and particularly became aware of it uh, by the 1140s. I mean, people like St. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, an archbishop in Milan, uh, became aware of what was happening here, and then various other uh, figures as well. And then they realized that they were dealing with a, um, uh, gradually the church realizes it's dealing with a uh, violently anti-Christian force, violent in the sense of opposing everything that Christianity stands for, with its idea of the need to redeem nature and corrected of its flaws, and corrected of its flaws by means of a message that everybody shared in common, that there was no elite group that knew some special truths that could only be transmitted to others if they were given an absolute obedience and then went through the kind of strange purification process uh, that was taught by this group. Um, and as a result of realizing that there was this parallel organization that was at work, uh, it began to feel that um, it, ha it had to do something drastic to deal with it, as did various state officials that uh, came into contact with it or, or, or who were made aware of it. There's one other uh, problem that has to be mentioned in this regard, uh, and it's a problem that, uh, that um, uh, it, it, there is a, a, a serious effort made to deal with, especially when you get underneath uh, the reign of Pope Innocent III, and that is that there was, um, there was stirred up by the whole Orthodox reform movement within the church um, that was very much promoted from various monastic um, uh, centers, of which, as we mentioned yesterday, the, the one coming out of Cluny was the most important, but there's, there's a number of others. Also, there was a real drive that then the papacy took charge of by the time you got into the middle of the 10 hundreds uh, to reform a corrupt clergy and a corrupt church uh, in which uh, the teaching, not so much the teachings of the church, but the actual canons uh, for uh, behavior were not being, uh, not being uh, followed. And so a real spirit of the need of purification of the clergy um, and of the church as a whole was promoted for Orthodox reasons. But that stirring up of that spirit and the awareness that much of the clergy was corrupt uh, also developed a, a kind of popular anti-clericalism um, that um, 
that uh, worked in tandem with the organized Orthodox reform movement, but could get out of hand as well. And some elements um, within the uh, within the church, uh, particularly among uh, educated or uh, well off uh, lay uh, lay um, uh, figures uh, in places like like France and uh, present day France and and Italy, uh, became very much convinced of the need for uh, a spirit of poverty. Um, and the need for a clergy which was poor and a laity which was poor in spirit as well. The, probably the most famous figure from among laymen who was involved in this was a man whose name was Valdez, who was a rich merchant, um, who gives birth to the movement which is named after him, the Valdensian movement. And um, one segment of this um, is, um, is, is radical and can veer off into a total rejection of all of the visible aspects of the church, including the, um, the, the, the sacraments uh, as visible signs of invisible, of invisible grace, whereas another aspect of it is just simply a, a kind of very intense uh, movement seeking to uh, encourage people to uh, to uh, have a, a, an attitude towards riches, which is detached, and maybe even live a life of poverty, and that aspect of it is something which is picked up, of course, by Saint Francis and Saint Dominic, and Pope Innocent III is going to actually approve certain groups that stemmed out of this original movement. But for uh, people panicked by the discovery of uh, the, um, the 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 Manichaeans. Um, there was a, a difficulty at times for them being able to distinguish between the Manichaeans and then those people who they thought maybe were hiding with their ideas of poverty, um, the absolute truth. Well, one other element, too, uh, that, that, that brings this down to, uh, to, uh, to, to, to very specific groups, uh, Gnosticism is the broad term. Manichaean is the term for followers of Mani who tried to grapple hold of existing religious movements and ideas and then just reinterpret them and use them for their own purposes. And then in uh, uh, the West, in Western Christianity, uh, the, the, the Manichaeans are known to us more specifically uh, with the term um, in, in uh, the southern part of France, Albigensians. Mm. Uh, the Albigensians are the men of Albi. It's just a focus around one of the important cities where these people were located. Um, and then also the term Catharist is used. That is used uh, often uh, very much in, in northern Italy and some parts of central Italy um, where they were active as well. And that takes its term, that term Catharism from the uh, a Greek word for indicating a purification because the whole idea of the elite guiding this is that uh, the people who were hearers of their message uh, had to be in some way um, saved through the purified lives of uh, the more perfect ones um, that they, the elite represented, um, and then be guided towards that purification under the best of circumstances as well. So, you know, again, Albigensian Catharist is the more specific term of the Manichaeanism manifested in the West, uh, which is itself a, a narrower term for this broader uh, vision of Gnosticism. And what we've got around us now 
um, with all of these esoteric teachings of the transhumanists and posthumanists and like is another form of Gnosticism that their elite, um, uh, their elite uh, teaches and tries to foist on everybody else. And uh, if they can, in a Manichaean way, uh, doing so by grappling hold of existing religious forces and reinterpreting them in their own way. But it reaches a real peak in the West of concern from the 1140s uh, down through until uh, pretty much the middle of the 1200s, by which time uh, it has been um, pretty much brought under control. Although there, there's, there's, uh, out, um, there's, there's there's sort of outcroppings of it um, in, in different ways, sometimes not as organized, that continue in the late 1200s and 1300s as well. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, so you're the Pope at this time. How do you get a handle on it? How do you how do you stop this this kind of surreptitious, you know, heresy from uh, from continuing to spread like it has been? Well, um, the first the first real efforts to deal with it, um, which uh, which are the ones that um, bring the church authorities into it, uh, 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 you know, especially the papal authorities into it. The first responses to it were popular um, and state reactions. Now, when you're talking about popular reactions, you're, 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 you're generally going to be talking about mob reaction. Um, sometimes it is a local bishop that is, uh, that is aware of, uh, of, of something uh, untoward taking place here, um, but who deals with it uh, in, a, in a kind of popular way as well, often with the aid of uh, the local population. Um, and, um, and, you know, when you have popular reactions to something, which might even be uh, a popular reaction based upon a good gut feeling. It can be vigilante in character and not particularly discerning in terms of who it strikes against or how it strikes against it. Um, and then when you're talking about the state, um, the, the reason why this, this, this uh, phenomenon uh, develops the most in southern France, southwestern France, and then northern Italy is because the political situation in these areas was some was was more chaotic. Um, but when um, when there was an awareness of it in areas where the political authorities were a little bit more solidly established, then they, you know, reacted very strongly uh, uh, at an early time as well. And when state authorities that reacted against this uh, did so, what they did is they did so with um, a reference to what they were learning much more about. Uh, interestingly enough, the church was the first force that learned much more about this, uh, but the state authorities were learning much more about it as well. And that is a much greater knowledge of old Roman law, of old Roman law. Roman law, um, only bits of it had survived and often mingled in with um, a local Germ Germanic law or, or Norman law or whatever, um, and customary law of various local places. But there's a much deeper knowledge of Roman law by the time you get into the 10 hundreds. Uh, and like with everything else that people in the Middle Ages learned from the ancient world, they treated it with uh, an awe that, uh, that, uh, that veered into the, the, the exaggerated adulation. Uh, as though you could not criticize any aspect of what, what was handed down from the ancients. And they rediscovered the fact that the Roman state had punished um, uh, these particular uh, ideas, particularly Manichaean ideas, very, very severely, very severely 
ultimately with the punishment of burning people um, who were connected with it. Um, so that they automatically leapt to the conclusion that what you must do um, is you must grab hold of these people and then severely punish them. Um, and then if you're combining this together with a, a methodology, procedural uh, procedures that are not exactly the, the most, um, the most uh, just, it, it can really get out of hand. Uh, but there's a lot of pressure on the church authorities to do something about this because uh, populations that um, that uh, reacted, not all of them do. I mean, it's an interesting phenomenon why the places in southern France and northern Italy, why there were people who did react. And there's a, a kind of specific clientele down there that uh, that we, we ought perhaps to make mention of. I don't want to take up all the time with this if you need to get onto the Spanish Inquisition as well. But this is the first, uh, uh, the first, uh, first manifestation of this. Uh, but um, but uh, uh, you know, the population really wants to see action. It gets angry at the church authorities for not doing something. Like in a way, like we get angry at the church sure. authorities for not doing doing something now. So in any case, what ended up happening is that um, uh, there was a council. There was a, the third. Uh, Third Lateran Council, uh, that um, I think it's the Third Lateran Council. I can't remember whether it was Second Council of Lyon or Third Third Lateran Council. Uh, by the time you get into the 1170s, uh, that talks about the the, the need to um, to deal um, uh, with this problem uh, in a way that will involve also the civil authorities being um, being called up because of the fact that. Um, it has an impact what these people are preaching on social authority as a whole. And, um, and also because of the fact that the church authorities don't feel comfortable about administering physical punishments. Um, so that uh, given the fact that the civil authorities uh, had reason to be concerned about this, what you would want to do is to have any kind of physical punishments be, be handed over to them. And then uh, there was a meeting of, um, of Pope Lucius III with uh, the Emperor Frederick Barbarossa in 1184, and uh, there was a, a another bit of legislation that was uh, that was developed for active pursuit of of trying to figure out who these people were and what they were up to, um, and it's out of that development that you then uh, begin to get more and more of the idea of the need for the papacy to send out specific legates um, in order to investigate what's going on. And now we're getting into the name inquisition because it's an inquiry. Um, sure. um, and so papal legates are going to begin to be sent out. And this is especially the case on, underneath Innocent III. And then they're going to need to have people who aid them in inquiring about what is going on, who is thinking what, who is guilty of what, how to make a distinction between some of these who are just poor in spirit and others who have got this, um, uh, this, this uh, uh, totally anti-Christian idea um, and who are, have organized a parallel church uh, to promote it. And then um, what you wanted to do is to get men who were considered to be pure in their own lives to be able to uh, investigate this so that they could not be accused of being uh, examples of the corrupt clergy that uh, the whole reform movement had been fighting against uh, since the late 900s. And at first they started with Cistercians, but then what happens is St. Dominic 
who uh, coming up from Spain, traveling through that area, coming into contact with these people, gained a greater awareness of what was happening there. Dominicans were seen to be the ones who would be much more suited for this kind of inquiry. And then Franciscans as well. But it was always much more the case that the Dominicans felt at home with it. Um, the area that St. Francis comes from, uh, Assisi, was a place that became a center for Manichaean Catharist activity. Even the mayor of Assisi, when Francis was active, uh, seems to have been um, a, a member of the whole, the whole group there. And St. Francis um, was never part of an inquiry committee, an inquisition committee like the Dominicans were, or uh, for that matter, other Franciscans were. Uh, but he understood what these people were all about. And it was his... Um, it was his understanding of it that led him to effectively fight against it. Um, and uh, just because he understood, for example, that one of the things that these people were most horrified by was childbirth. Because if you have a child, um, you're bringing another evil body into the evil world. Oh, wow. And um, so the, 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 the Manichaeans, the Albigensians, the Catharists are very much anti-childbirth. They'd rather see the extirpation of the human race um, because it's all it's all evil. They want the existing souls to free. They often call it a spark to fly out of the body and the sensual to be able to purify itself. And if you, by the way, if you look at a history of um, if you ever look at a history of uh, contraception and abortion, uh, a lot of the uh, the 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 initial work in a popular way with this is is traced back to the Manichaeans in Western Europe at this time. And St. Francis discovered the best tool to teach the population the difference with the Orthodox Christian position, the creche. That's why he invented the creche. The creche and the, the Christmas manger scene were an anti-Manichaean measure of St. Francis. Wow. It worked. And it worked very, very successfully. All right. So that there's this major then effort. And part of that major effort as well um, was also the famous Albigensian crusade um, that is called by Innocent III after his initial legate, um, a Cistercian by the name of Pierre de Castelnau, was murdered in the area that he was investigating. Um, and then uh, Innocent called a crusade. And there are things that happen in this crusade, once again, because of the fact that you're going to be dragging soldiery and soldiery of various political forces who stand to gain if they can overthrow the political forces that were supporting the Manichaeans in southwestern uh, France that involved a number of, uh, of, of, of bloody massacres um, that was able to then fuel a lot of the whole anti-Catholic, anti-Inquisition um, uh, Protestant uh, promoters of the whole black legend against Spain. When you get down to the the, the, the next stage of this whole issue later later on, all right. So that um, you know, ironically, by the way, uh, when I mentioned that um, in various ways, uh, the um, the whole movement was broken as an organized force. Um, in various ways, it was broken. Ironically, the last bastions of uh, the Manichaean forces that were so active in the 11 and 1200s in France and in Italy was right in the area where I run my summer program every wow. year uh, on Lake Garda. 
Um, yeah. The last bastion of them was in this uh, in this town called Desensano, which is uh, the train station, which is at the bottom of the lake. So it's it's kind of kind of ironic that we, yeah. uh, you know, that we're over there now doing something which is totally anti-Gnostic right. and anti-Medicaid in character. So we have the we have the state, we have these these local state uh, controlled militias, so to speak, or or civic organizations that are rediscovering Roman law and saying, hey, they burned the Manichae, they burned these Gnostics at the stake. We're going to do the same thing. Right. Now, did did the Pope at the time, was he okay with the state, um, you know, taking control like this and, and doing this sort of thing? Obviously, the, the church is going to be involved with trying to figure out who is a heretic, kind of like right. how they've done all throughout history and how they should do. But was the church okay with the physical punishment and 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 the the death of these heretics? Well, you see, this is this is always this was a problem from the very beginning. Um, and in effect, the whole um, idea, well, to begin with, uh, the church from the very outset uh, was not happy about the idea of being involved in any kind of physical punishments. I mean, from the, in the early church, it was always an awareness that you had to throw heretics out. You had to sure. throw them out. Um, but, um, but the church was hesitant to have any kind of physical punishments against anybody that was a heretic uh, after, let's say, for example, the legalization of the church, and there was a there was a, a, a quite violent reaction against uh, the state involvement in punishing a um, a heretic named Priscillian um, in the in the the three hundreds, the late three hundreds. Uh, there is a there is a movement um, that uh, that uh, argues that the state has the right to punish heretics who are promoting ideas that are dangerous for. Uh, the civil society uh, that uh, that uh, is promoted in Africa um, because of the Donatist uh, heresy in the late 300s and the early 400s. And St. Augustine, somewhat hesitatingly, uh, ends up approving of the idea that uh, the state has grounds for being being uh, involved in this if it if it is disruptive to the social order. Um, but then when you get into the period we're talking about right now, uh, it's clear that uh, the church authorities are, are nervous about uh, all of this. And step by step, what they're going to do is they're going to admit that um, you need to find out who these people are. Um, the state has a certain um, right um, uh, to, to punish uh, heresy, which has an impact socially. Um, and of course, the church authorities are themselves in awe of the of Roman law and the fact that Roman law allowed for rather harsh punishments in this regard as well. Um, and uh, bit by bit, it's going to also even allow the idea of um, torture um, being uh, being involved, but under very very uh, specific rules. Uh, one uh, uh, only if the um, the um, uh, the the people engaged in the in the Inquisition are are, are almost a hundred percent sure that the person that they're 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 um, uh, they're going to uh, the term is apply the question to uh, is is guilty. Secondly, it can only be done once, and thirdly, it can't be done in any way that actually permanently harms an individual's limb, uh, much less his life. Um, mm -hmm. But the state is more and more active in this regard, and. Uh, you might know that by the time you get into the 1200s, 
uh, and in particular in the battle of church and state that involves uh, various popes against uh, the emperor uh, Frederick II, the, the battling of church and state gets more and more bitter. And Pope Gregory IX decided in 1231, which was a period of another outbreak of concern about uh, the influence of these heretics, that he had to organize uh, the whole of the procedure much, much more clearly. So it's really Gregory IX, who is a canon lawyer expert as well, uh, who sets up the, the procedures uh, to be followed much, much more clearly. Um, very much um, uh, procedures that are going to be maintained really in the future. But it, it remains the case that in the 1200s, 1300s, whatever's remains of this in the 1400s, that uh, inquisitorial procedures are only utilized by these ad hoc teams of inquisitors who go out with papal approval in areas which are affected by heresy. Um, and there's no permanent structure of any kind here. Um, the, um, the, the, the bad press that the medieval Inquisition gets is a bad press that is primarily connected uh, with uh, uh, excesses of the soldiery at the time of the Albigensian Crusade, and then a couple of inquisitors um, at the time when Gregory IX uh, uh, establishes these, these, these procedures much more clearly. One man, for example, in particular, a man named Conrad of Marburg, in the 1200s, who is quite, quite um, um, exaggerated in his in his methods and is murdered as a result of uh, of, of this. Another man who's known, I think, is Robert uh, Le Bougre. He's called Le Bougre. That means the uh, the 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 term uh, bugger was a term that was a popular translation of the word bulgar, which was associated with the evangelical work for creating this problem. And uh, Robert Le Bougre was a convert from Manichaeanism to Orthodox Catholicism. And then he became an inquisitor because he, he knew the, the, the territory, so to speak, but he was, he was rather rough. And so as a consequence, what they did, which is not the norm at all, became, as usual, the cause celeb that was focused on. And people in more recent times have done a lot of studies about, about, um, uh, just how many people were involved in um, in uh, let's say burnings or 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 brutal imprisonments and the like, and it, it, what what that's yielded is an indication that you're talking about outbursts um, in isolated areas, sometimes you know uh, involving a military action. There's a place called Montségur in um, in uh, I think the early 1300s, the last out post or maybe 1200s forget the exact date um the last outpost of these people in in southern france where there was a um you know, there was a, a, a an actual military expedition and then there were there, there were murders and then under conrad of marburg and a few others but generally when you take the whole picture you're talking about you know very small numbers under generally very moderate um uh inquisitorial activity uh, on the base of Roman law procedures, which involve certain procedures which we more familiar with Anglo-Saxon law are um, uh, considered to be somewhat harsh. You know, the the witnesses are 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 heard secretly. You're not confronted with your witnesses. 
Um, sure. but, but there are certain protections for the um, um, for the um, for the ones who are accused as well. Uh, still, you know, there's there, there are procedures there which uh, which um, which are when you get into, let's say, uh, uh, the Roman Inquisition, the permanent Roman Inquisition from 1542 onwards, you're not you're not going to find the same kind of abuses um, perpetrated as a result of. Wow. Uh, yeah, a lot of parallels there with the with the same sort of stories we heard with the Crusades. Uh, right, a lot of yeah. a lot of people getting involved who were over overly exuberant in in the roles that they were playing. Uh, right, and and then self interested, you know, self interested yeah. because there's property that you can confiscate as a result of it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so then that, that's the medieval Inquisition. Let's move into the Spanish Inquisition, which is right. again probably the most popular, so to speak. Uh, right. the inquisitions <laughs> right. uh used against used against catholics um is there a connection to the manichaean heresy there or is that something no. totally separate no there's not a connection um uh to the manichaean heresy. the the, the spanish inquisition that's created underneath ferdinand and isabella is created first off with the argument that there are problems with um uh, as spain was moving to uh to take over the uh, rest of the peninsula from the the um, the Moors, uh, that there were problems with converted Jews and converted Moors, right? And you get this famous Morano Morisco argument that the uh, people who uh, had converted from among the Jews and had converted from among the Moors were not really converted, and as a result of that, they were um, uh, fit what we would call fifth columnists in uh, the Christian the Christian ranks. Um, but uh, the the problem with the Spanish Inquisition from the very beginning is that it's something that is requested by the monarchs. It's approved of by Pope Sixtus IV, uh, who is um, engaged in all kinds of political shenanigans and one of one sort or another back in um, in Italy at the time. Anyway, uh, and um, it's a it's a an Inquisition which, even though it does involve uh, as um, as the, um, the 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 figures who are uh, the uh, inquisitors and the and then the grand inquisitor himself, clerics and uh, Dominicans to a large degree, it's underneath the control of the state. It's underneath ultimately the supreme control of the state. There's a supreme council um, that um, that uh, uh, guides it, and and everybody knows that even though in theory even the monarch himself is subject to the um the 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 inquisition um and the grand inquisitor in fact you can see uh, a popular depiction of this in the opera don carlo of verdi where there's a confrontation between the grand inquisitor and and king philip ii and the king laments the fact that even he has to give in to the grand inquisitor but wow. that's that's a but that's a fraud that's a fraud that's that's not the case at all and rome from the very beginning, has got problems with the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, there's constant complaints to Rome about the Spanish Inquisition being really primarily an agent of the of the government. Um, its most famous inquisitor, the the man who really puts it uh, in order the most, um, is a man whose name is Torquemada, um, who was active underneath Ferdinand and Isabella. Uh, but it continues onwards, and it's a constant source of problems for Rome. Uh, the Spanish were in charge 
obviously, in vast areas of Europe and then the New World. And they tried to, uh, uh, to export the Spanish Inquisition into these areas. Uh, they exported into the New World, parts of the New World at least. They tried to extend it into their holdings in uh, Italy, but they were fought off in Italy. Uh, they expanded into their holdings in the lowlands. And that is an interesting uh, um, uh, uh, matter because it ends up being one of the elements of uh, intense Spanish control over the lowlands that gave birth to the revolt against Spanish control that led ultimately to the uh, to the separation of the northern part of the Spanish lowlands uh, that becomes the um, independent Netherlands, uh, the Dutch Republic. Uh, and then ultimately a, a, a monarchy as well. And it's it's uh, through that revolt of the um, of the people in the lowlands against the Spanish that much of the activity, that much of the argument that's made together with the aid of the English, who were uh, allies of them in their revolt against Spain, uh, that puts together the arguments that form what we call the black legend, you know, the whole anti-Spanish black legend. And again, here, uh, what there's going to uh, what's going to uh, be done is to build up on um, complaints about the Spanish Inquisition that the papacy in Rome had uh, quite strongly as well, but to turn it into an illustration of how the Roman Church as a whole, with Spain as its agent, uh, was guilty of you know mass 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 murders. And here too, even with the Spanish Inquisition, although there are abuses, but abuses that affect uh, church officials as well. For example, uh, the Archbishop of Toledo in the uh, 1500s, the late 1500s, uh, is accused by uh, the Inquisition also because of political problems that uh, the uh, the uh, the uh, Archbishop Archbishop Carranza had with uh, with the king. He's accused of crimes, is imprisoned by the Inquisition, and Rome has to fight a battle to try to get control of the Archbishop of Toledo and bring him to Rome so that he can wow. be with uh, more, more justly. Um, so it's a, it's a, you know, it's a wild force, but, uh, but here too, again, the numbers are badly exaggerated, tremendously exaggerated. Uh, and, um, uh, and uh, what happens ultimately uh, to enter into the arguments against the inquisition in Spain is the fact and what I'm talking about when you get into the 1700s, for example, is the fact that the Spanish Inquisition's got control over a number of different realms of activity that state governments were trying to get control of um, from out of the hands of Protestant uh, uh, Protestant uh, communities as well as Catholic communities uh, because they they wanted to exercise a more rigorous rigorous discipline. Um, and um, that includes uh, control over marriage law and 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 the like. Uh, and the Inquisition, uh, in the eyes of the state, uh, had a reputation for being much too lenient uh, in character, much too lenient in character. They wanted to impose much more rigorous standards. So even in a place like Spain, where the the government had uh, a lot of control over the institution, it wanted more control still, but more control because the Inquisition was too lenient. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and not, um, not harsh enough in, uh, imposing, uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, uh, state will.
Could you say then that the the issues with the Spanish Inquisition, you know, the excesses that that did took place, even though, like you said, a lot of them are exaggerated, um, that was an issue not so much of Rome giving approval to them, but of Rome mismanaging the whole situation and not having enough control over uh, what was happening in the peninsula at the time? Well, I mean, again, the papacy in the late seven, late 1400s was not exactly um, strong. Right. And, uh, uh, and as a result of that, and it was also very much steeped in all kinds of political shenanigans involving, um, involving uh, trying to establish the papal states under firmer, uh, firmer papal control, but often in conjunction with the particular family of the existing pope. And there's a lot of game playing and selling of uh, what ought to be um, uh, church rights out to whatever political authorities might be momentarily useful uh, to them. Yeah, you, you know, it's interesting this. Uh, I always I always like there are a number of 19th century Catholic uh, Catholic apologists who pointed this 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 uh, principle out. Um, and I remember the argument of the French writer Louis Vuillot in particular in this regard. He said the problem is this. He said Catholics, he said, are bad insofar as they do not rigorously follow their teachings um, and their moral principles. He said their opponents are bad the more that they do follow their teachings um, yeah. and their moral principles. Um, and therefore, a lot of what happens in the Catholic Church that's bad is because of the fact that there's weak popes, weak bishops, not really enforcing the rules. Uh, whereas when uh, you get the people that are uh, promoting principles that are anti-Christian in character, um, they're 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 bad when they follow their principles fully yeah. and then can get a compliant church to go along with them. Well, that's yeah, it's a fascinating insight. So that's the Spanish Inquisition. Then we have one more we need to get through, right, right. which is the Roman Inquisition. And this Roman is happening later. This was founded, the Roman Inquisition was founded in 1542 underneath Pope Paul III. Uh, Pope Paul III was um you know he's one of these popes in history that is 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 always uh um uh, the um uh the, the inspiration of hope for uh, all of us when we live in times of misery uh because he was uh one of the the main figures of the Farnese family which was noted as being one of the most corrupt families in Italy and he had been a cardinal for a good long while uh, who then is elected Pope in the 1530s, and no one expected that this Sion uh, of a corrupt Italian family would be the man who would undertake all the various measures that were going to really um, uh, uh, cause the, the various reform elements that were already active in the church to be able to take root. Nobody expected that he would um, call a commission to study what the reasons were for the Protestant Reformation, a cardinalatial committee, which, by the way, um, its report said that the reason why this Reformation broke out is because of the miserable policies of the papacy, uh, right. to a large degree. Um, and that's underneath a pope, you know, that that is his commission. Nobody ever dreamed that he would do things like be the great defender of the Society of Jesus, allow that to be established, and any number of other reform groups. Nobody ever dreamed that he would be the man that would actually call a council, um, the Council of Trent. Um, and what happened was that by 1542, 
Pope Paul III was aware of the fact that Protestantism was spreading in Italy. And as a result of that, what he needed to do was to uh, make sure that this, this did not affect the peninsula. So he created now a permanent Roman Inquisition. Um, and in fact, that Inquisition in Rome becomes this, is, is conducted by the congregation, which is considered to be the most important um, from uh, Paul III's reign onwards. It then starts to be given a run for the money by the Secretary of State as you move along. And it's the congregation of the Holy Office. All right, it's the Holy Office which has control of the Inquisition. And the procedures of the Inquisition are going to be always, you know, pretty much, pretty much the same. Um, in that, uh, if you, uh, well, it's there permanent now, so that you can have a permanent set of cardinal inquisitors who can preside over teams that will study things. But there are there are courts, um, there are procedures. Um, there's a, um, a, um, a a sense of exactly how you uh, go about business, which is going to be applied. Um, uniformly wherever the Roman Inquisition uh, and its writ are able to run. But of course, it's going to have a problem with Spain and Spanish possessions where uh, the Inquisition of Spain uh, has been put in charge uh, that it's got to it's got to deal with. And we'll see another example of a problem here when we talk about Spanish colonization the next time around. Um, and when you look at the Roman Inquisition, the Roman Inquisition is um, very, very, very mild um, in its approach towards things. It has a kind of wild outburst only in a brief period of time underneath Pope Paul IV, um, who is, is, is uh, Pope in the, um, the 1550s for a short period of time, who is a, a very, very personally uh, pure figure uh, he's got a few problems in the sense that he's got he's a family he's he's concerned about his his family his nephews and the like and he turns a blind eye for a good period to their uh, depredations but then finally when he hears about them he strikes against them vigorously but he was a very very strong reforming pope and what he did is he tried to utilize the Inquisition not just against um, uh, people guilty of heretical ideas. But guilty of um, of moral crimes that he considered to be uh, 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 atrocious, and it's it's interesting in this regard that I'm starting to change my mind about um, about whether it was an excess that he was involved in mm. because he considered um, the influence of, of of the sodomites to be so dangerous. Uh, at his time period, that he brought uh, the trials of uh, of sodomy underneath the Inquisition, and um, I find this interesting because I, I, you know, I, I always myself had thought, well, you know, I mean, the moral issues are a separate matter. But when you look at the way in which all of the arguments of these people now are, are part and parcel of an entire vision of life, um, which is uh, has has uh, sort of uh, become a, uh, a, a an essential element in the creed of the whole Gnostic, global, uh, transhumanist uh, um, elite. I, I, I'm starting to think he was on to something there. 
Um, just yeah. as uh, just as in effect underneath Savonarola, there was a reaction against sodomy um, uh, as it had uh, become established in uh, the court of Lorenzo the Magnificent uh, in, in, in Florence in the 1400s. But then there was a reaction against Paul the Fourth after he um, after he died, and uh, the next popes took took that that kind of issue or uh, all moral issues in general outside of the purview of the inquisition um the the great the the big cause celebre of the roman inquisition is giordano bruno who was burned in 1600 uh i'm not certain but i think he was the only one that the roman inquisition ever did that too um and the reason why he was punished in rome was because he escaped the authorities that wanted to get him in venice um and he escaped uh, to Venice from the authorities in uh, various various other places that had wanted to do it. And if you ever look at the views of Giordano Bruno, you know that he had to be shut up. Um, burning is, of course, another matter, but uh, right. he had to be shut up. Uh, but it's 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 mild, mild, mild the way the Roman Inquisition deals with things compared to any of the secular courts at the time. I mean, if you take the burning of Giordano Bruno is the one case of the Roman Inquisition, and then compare it to what's being done under Elizabeth at the same time. Um, you've got the uh, example of a, a lax court um, uh, in contrast. Yeah. So we have the Spanish Inquisition, the Roman Inquisition, they both kind of overlap. When do these inquisitions, as we kind of know them, when do they kind of cease to exist? Well, the Roman Inquisition with Second Vatican Council in the aftermath. Okay. Because it's the uh, end of the Holy Office, and then the creation of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, um, which is not even a congregation anymore. Now it's a dicastery. Right. Dicastery, yeah. Because Pope Francis is not interested in doctrine uh, <laughs> at right. all, anyway. Um, so that's in the 1960s that that comes to uh, comes to an end. Uh, the Spanish Inquisition uh, was abolished when the um, when the French came into Spain during the Napoleonic Wars, and then it was reestablished by the restored king of, of, of Spain uh, after uh, the, restora the restoration, but then comes to an end entirely in 1834. Uh, but um, but um, uh, it was, I think its last serious uh, work, the Spanish Inquisition, in any way that um, has any kind of splashes in the early 17. Hundreds in the aftermath of the um, the War of the Spanish Succession, uh, which created a lot of political problems in Spain that the government was concerned for for for, for dealing with once once more. Um, mm. but in, in general, the 1700s is a period of um, of quite uh, quite um, uh, mild activity in this regard. One uh, other instance, by the way, you know of of um, uh, of of Looking at what the Roman Inquisition does um, compared to what states are doing at the time um, could be could be um, given in the famous battle over the um, the so-called Venetian interdict, uh, which took place in 1606-1607. Uh, the, the Republic of Venice um, was very much interfering with the clergy and then the rights of the church in a number of ways that were not unfamiliar in church-state battles uh, throughout history. But what happened is that uh, uh, the Roman church struck 
against the Republic of Venice underneath Pope Paul V um, in 1606, 1607. And uh, when the Venetian state did not uh, give in, uh, what the Pope did is he imposed an interdict on Venice. So that means, therefore, that you cannot have any um, any celebration of the sacraments except uh, emergency baptisms and um, I, th I think extreme unction uh, as well. Um, and there was still further reaction of the Venetian state forcing priests to disobey Rome in this regard. But what's really interesting is um, are the arguments that were being um, utilized by the um, the government. Um, and the arguments that were being utilized by the government were the arguments of the dominant political group in that period who called themselves the Giovanni, the young ones. And these young ones, um, political arguments were um, not just not just anti-Catholic, not just anti-Christian in general. They're they're totally nihilist in character because they argue that um, to begin with, they argue that. It's God's will that um, that order be maintained only by the civil authorities. And you could say, well, okay, there that's anti that's anti-Christian in character. But then it goes on to say that the political authorities are dealing with the realm of a human um, human behavior, and there are no principles that can be utilized to guide human behavior because human behavior is just simply the flux of uncontrollable passion. And as a result of that, it seems to indicate that the state can do whatever the state wants to do to control this flux of passionate behavior uh, that cannot appeal to any kind of overriding principles of justice or good or evil um, in order to keep, keep you know, to bring them under control. It's like it's like Thomas Hobbes with his uh, argument that you're just living in the jungle of a war of all against all, and you just simply need the jungle master of the Leviathan state to control everything. So that's the that's the contrast to the Roman um, uh, position based upon both faith and reason, giving you principles of justice that you have to enforce. And I'd rather be underneath the control of the Roman Inquisition um, if uh, it came to a battle of these two forces rather than those of the Venetian state subject to these kinds of ideas. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, as we close, could the, I'm, I'm looking at some of the notes you passed along to me ahead of time. You said, are there modern secular inquisitions? And that's uh, an interesting question. Uh, where did you want to go on that? Well, just look around you. Just look around you. I mean, look around you now more than ever before. I mean, in the past, even 20 years ago, uh, one might have referred to just simply the uh, reality of uh, the various um, forces controlling thought at the time of the French Revolution or um, in the, uh, uh, the, the the period of the uh, uh, the the uh, Marxist revolution, Marxist-Leninist revolutions. But now you see it manifest um, as the final result of, um, of 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 liberalism. I mean, here here you have a here you have a uh, an idea that claimed that you have to have freedom of thought freedom of thought, and that you could not possibly try to control thought uh, because, because uh, there has to be this, this battle of all ideas. And it's the, the agents of this very liberal pr principle now that have brought back in a way that the Catholic Church would never um, have argued 
uh, was feasible. The idea that error has no rights um, and the errors that they're punishing are just simply everything that they have the will to punish so that they have redefined science to mean whatever it is they want science to mean. Uh, they've now exiled or are trying to exile every kind of not just religious principle, but rational philosophical principle on the basis of promoting an agenda, which is clearly dominated by simply the will of this mishmash of different kinds of ideological and money forces that are that are um, uh, trying to control every government around the globe. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, we have we have an inquisition that is now um, doing things to fire people, ruin people's lives, medically control people, redefine what human beings are, uh, while claiming to be the voice of a freedom greater than has ever that has ever existed in the history of the world. I mean, it's the biggest hypocrisy imaginable. And quite frankly, it's always been hypocritical. Uh, I mean, the forces that developed the, um, the legend around uh, the Inquisition uh, uh, building the 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 the, uh, the obvious flaws and errors and crimes of the Inquisition into a generic argument against controlling anything religiously uh, with civil effects at all. The very forces who created the arguments from among the Protestants were promoters of precisely the kinds of religious ideas that put the definition of what the faith is. Um, really into the into the hands of the will of whatever particular group um, is dominating the Protestant denomination uh, that you're, you're, you're referring to. I mean, Luther himself is a nominalist who uh, just simply argues that God's will has to be obeyed and that will is obvious, but the obvious will of God is interpreted by a scripture that he interprets um, right. and, uh, and, 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 um, uh, and tries to destroy uh, the interpretations of anybody who disagrees with him, um, and those who disagree with him do the same thing um, in 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 the, in their own fashion, um, in a way which uh, has allowed all of them to uh, work to create the kind of monstrous totalitarian understanding of imposition of the will of what I consider to be a, a union of criminals and maniacs. Um, uh, that, that, that smell victory now with the compliance of a lot of the forces that should be fighting against them, including our, uh, many of the officials of our own church. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. And it's, uh, it, it is interesting to see that, that, that through line exists in a completely different way now, right. nowadays. Right. Well, Dr. Rao, thank you so much. Um, next week, we'll be talking to you more about uh, some of these topics. We have a few more of these, but next week in particular, we're going to be talking about uh, Spanish colonization, which we touched on a little bit last week, but we're going to dive into a lot more detail. So okay. uh, looking forward to that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic Series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us and God bless you.